Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis. Welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Our guest today is author and cryptozoologist Shaitan Noir. Hello, Shaitan. Hi. Uh, you want to give us your background for the audience? Sure, I would love to. So, I am a cryptozoologist, but I'm also an author and a, um, I used to be just a travel writer, but now I focus more on um, paranormal and weird travels, um, somewhat of the legend hunting, but um, I find that some people, when they say that they're legend hunters, are really just doing V&Es, and that's not my thing, so I tend to go to places that are still public access and I do write-ups on them and post them for um, articles. So I do the, the paranormal travel writing. I have a very strong interest in um, the Great Lakes, their paranormal history that includes not only the lake monster reports, but also the ghost ships, the hoodoo ships, the haunted... Um, bodies of water, because uh, the, the Great Lakes are huge, but there are certain areas that are known more for their hauntings than others. Um, I am also a investigator for the uh, North American Dogman Project. I am the Michigan uh, chapter representative, uh, so all the reports for Michigan come to me, and then I do a little fact-finding on them to see if it's a hoax or if it's an actual report um, that needs to be investigated. I also run a group on Facebook called the Great Lakes Center for the Unexplained uh, Events and Phenomenon. And I have had an interest in the paranormal and cryptozoology since around the age of 10 uh, when I first started um, seeing you know, you'd see these occasional documentaries about Bigfoot or, or uh, Atlantis or, you know, strange places like that um, that would pop up on TV, you know, odd hours of the night. And uh, I would watch them, and, and that, you know, opens up your mind, and you just start thinking more about these things. Yeah, I noticed, uh, I recently saw that you're going to be teaching some kind of college course, correct? Oh, yes. Actually, that class starts next Wednesday at Owens Community College in Perrysburg, Ohio, uh, which is about an hour drive for me, but uh, they were very accepting of the course. And so it's broken down into four separate weeks, and each week I cover a variety of different topics. Uh, the first week is 
actually the formation of the Great Lakes and the geology of them of showing why certain shipwrecks occur in, in certain areas. And there's several throughout the, we have five Great Lakes, and there's, there are um, several different locations on those Great Lakes where there are um, different land formations, um, different strange occurrences with the waves that just happen to be perfect for creating shipwreck. Um, and then I, I also talk in the first week about uh, historical shipwrecks. There's over 6,000 shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, so I had to, doing the research and reading ones that resonated with me, I tried to pick two from each of the Great Lakes to, to talk about. And then we also discuss um, the, the ghost ships and the hoodoo ships of the Great Lakes, and that's all in, in week one. Well, now, the most famous shipwreck that I know of on the Great Lakes is the Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah, Lake Superior. And, yeah, yep. And that, that is the one that most people um, recognize when you talk about shipwrecks on the Great Lakes. What a lot of people don't know is the, the Fitz, as, as she's you know lovingly referred to, was actually considered a hoodoo ship by many sailors because when she was being birthed into the, the Great Lakes, she had several calamities that happened right at her birthing. That's not even, you know, concerning what happened along her, her long career. So she was, her sinking was a very interesting um, occurrence because a lot of old-time mariners or people who have been on the Great Lakes lived around the shorelines of the Great Lakes do believe that she was taken by the Three Sisters which is a series of three huge waves that come right, one right after another, uh, ranging from 20 foot high up to 50 feet high, and they just beat the ship down underneath the water, and if she has a full load of iron ore or anything, I mean, these ships were carrying several, you know, sometimes 100 tons of, of material, if they had a full cargo then, and they were going full speed, then the water, once it drives you, you know, underneath the surface, uh, you're just going straight to the bottom. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you're familiar with the poem, The, the Song of Hiawatha, right? Yeah, I, I'm familiar with that song, and I'm, I'm also very familiar with um, the, um, the song... Um, about Edmund Fitzgerald. Yeah, well, anyway, the poem, uh, uh, The Song of Hiawatha by Longfellow, describes a uh, giant sturgeon and a, a lake serpent in Lake Superior. And I would imagine that probably figures into the Indian beliefs. That's probably where Longfellow got it from. Well, the, the Native American um, legends and stories about the Great Lakes have have been retold for, I, I would say, forever, um, but since Native Americans populated the Great Lakes. And it's very interesting because when you, when you talk to anthropologists they, and to Native American storytellers, they will tell you that 
the the Native American tribes, what they would do is they would and that would be like their base territory. But then small groups of, of the settlement would continue on to a new destination and would build a settlement there and then it would continue on. So there's a theory that uh, because there is a story of um, mermen or mermaids in Lake Superior, but it's believed that this story came from the East Coast, and what we're seeing as um, mermaid, um, that story traveled with them. Yeah. And so come to the Great Lakes when something, you know, Similar to that, which, you know, I, I I can only theorize that maybe a seal that had, you know, seaweed on it or um, creatures, you know, having seaweed on them, if, if they were seen, that could have looked like a mermaid to some people, and that was their, their um, justification in the story of, yes, these are here. Well... If you're familiar with what they call the horse culture, when Indians began getting access to horses, a bunch yep. of a bunch of tribes moved south onto the plains, and other ones moved north from Mexico onto the plains, and they took some of their folklore from other regions and brought it with them. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's touching exactly on what you're talking about. Yeah, because back. When, when the, the United States were first being um, explored and, and uh, traveled upon by the Native Americans, they, once a resource was depleted in one area, and if they couldn't get it to regrow or the animals to come back in that population, then they had to go pursue it. Uh, unlike humans today where we're, you know, Usually the city that you're born in is the city you stay in, and you might travel for leisure, but you don't really have to do it for um, pursuit of food or for uh, clothing or stuff like that. Pretty much whatever you need is within a 10-mile you know area of your home. That wasn't the case with early uh, Native Americans who were you know living on the plains or in the Great Lakes or in uh, the New Mexico area. Once a food source or a um, building material was depleted or water source, then it was time to send out scouts to look for more of you know what you needed. And if it couldn't be brought within reasonable means back to the the settlement or the you know the place that everyone was living, then the whole civilization tended to move to where that, you know, where that new source of food, water, building materials was. Yeah. So what is your general theory about the lake monsters reported from the Great Lakes? Do you believe they're surviving prehistoric animals that are just undiscovered yet, or do you think they're paranormal entities, or what is your general theory regarding this? Well, it, with the Great Lakes, it's, the Great Lakes are very interesting because 
where our Great Lakes are now wasn't where they started. They started way down by the equator, and then um, as everything shifts and moves, they they came northwards. Plate tectonics. Yes. But at the same time, you had these huge glaciers that were scraping across the land masses. So any fossils or um, skeletal remains, anything like that that was on the, the land surface was actually scraped off and pushed south of us. And then the Great Lakes helped scrape out where, you know, the basins for the Great Lakes are now. And then they were filled over time with different water sources. Now, we do know that there were seas, ancient seas, that were part of the Great Lakes because we had the coral, which here in Michigan we call them Petoskey stones. Uh, but there's several different sites throughout the state and Ohio, Indiana, um, even into Pennsylvania and part of Wisconsin that have fossils of ancient corals, uh, ancient uh, brachiopods, ancient, um, I think some people have even found, found uh, trilobites. Um, so we do know that there was land, that there was um, sea life here over the top of, of the land masses and going into the Great Lakes before it turned to fresh water. Unfortunately, for the Great Lakes, we will never know what's on the bottom of the Great Lakes because those lakes will never, ever be drained. Um, as a matter of fact, at this point in time, almost all of the Great Lakes are uh, at their highest points ever to the point where they're actually eating up the um, shorelines, especially um, like Lake Michigan, um, areas where there was like, you know, 100 feet of, of beach now have maybe five feet because the water has just risen so high. So I do think that there's the potential always to find either new species or species that we discounted as being extinct, being alive and well. I don't think that they're going to be the massive ones, um, especially in the Great Lakes, like the um, Predator X, which would be the... Um, Flyosaur. The, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who was over 30 feet long? Yeah. I think you look more reasonably at something that is within the, the 5 to 6 range, which would have a banquet to eat from. I mean, the Great Lakes are well known for their salmon, their trout, yeah. their, um, their bass. Carp are now, you know, the invasive carp species are now taking hold. So Asian jumping carp. Yeah. Yeah, the, the silver carp, well, the, the silver, the black, the Asian carps are now making their ways into the, the Great Lakes, um, including, like, the sea lampreys. Yeah. So, and, and our, our biggest um, of, the, of the Great Lakes fish, the sturgeons, um, these would all be a very, um, you know, worthwhile meal to a plesiosaur or a pyrothor. Yeah. And so I think that there's the possibility. I just don't think that they're going to be of the mammoth size that everybody thinks of when you say uh, marine reptile or dinosaur yeah. or pterosaur. And everybody, you know, there, there were mammoth species yeah. within those, those different classifications. 
but there was also very minute. Um, and I'm thinking that what would be found here in the Great Lakes at this day and time would be something on a much smaller scale. Downsize um, to adjust to the available food supply over time. Yes. And so, you know, be, you know, being between the five and, and six foot range, I think would be um, would be just about right. Um, especially in the fresh water, where it takes more um, it takes more food to power a a body that stays in the cold water yeah. than it does wolf water, because yeah. you're constantly if you don't have the ability to like go into mud and go into a hibernative state like the turtles and salamanders do, um, then you're pretty much at the mercy of the, of the water temperatures. And uh, anybody who's ever been to the Great Lakes, you you know you know um, if you vacationed in in August or you know September, that's about the warmest time of the you know the water temperatures for the Great Lakes. Yeah. Once September hits, you start, you know, the water temperature starts cooling down, and then going into October, you have the possibility of the gales coming, and when the gales come, that brings the snow, and then you're you're looking at, you know, temperatures dropping severely, and most of the ice, um, I, I, I've driven through um, the upper peninsula, you know, peninsula of Michigan before, Going into Wisconsin and upper, you know, Minnesota, and there's there's huge masses of ice, yeah, um, and snow. Still Memorial Day weekend, you know that you can see, um, you know, half mile out into the Great Lakes, you know, there's still these huge bodies of of, of ice. Yeah. So it's you know, it, it, these are not warm bodies of water. These are very well. Cool I was going to mention. I was going to mention that there's some evidence now that plesiosaurs were warm-blooded, so that might be one strategy yeah. to get around that. Yeah, that, that's a very hard thing. I mean, we have found that um, alligators can survive even in icy cold bodies of water as long as they can get their snouts above the surface of the water where it freezes. They can lower their heartbeats down to one heartbeat, you know, per minute or, or longer. Um, the studies, um, because this is this is a air quotation marks new phenomenon that um, bio, biologists are seeing. But to people who live on like the Ohio River, that's how you, yeah we see those snouts all the time. Yeah, and so this is nothing new to us. So. The, and the temperatures in our hair, even going into southern air, are, are, are um, very comparable to Michigan, you know, having a mild winter. So as long as something has the ability to survive in, in some fashion, whether it's getting, you know, one heartbeat per minute or um, getting a breath <laughs> of air, you know, species will survive. So we do have... Um, I, I, there's an alligator um, sanctuary in Antlers, Michigan, or Athens, Michigan. I think it's Athens, Michigan. That's south of you. And they get reports all the time of, hey, you're, you're not going to believe this, but I think there's an alligator in my pond or in the, the local swimming hole. And they'll go out and 
chances are somebody who's vacationing down in the southern part of the United States brought a baby crocodile or alligator or something that looked cute as a baby, but now it's six feet long, it no longer fits in their bathtub, and it's trying to eat them. Yeah. So what do they do? They, they find what they think is a, a remote body of water. Um, a pod or something like that, and they just dump it in, which is really, really bad because what's the alligator going to do once it's in its natural habitat? It's going to hunt, and humans are on that menu. Yeah. Well, I, so, I you know the um, yeah. the temperatures of Lake Champlain are very much like the Great Lakes, and uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to mention that the snapping turtles, they don't really go into hibernation they just kind of go into a torpor state where they're kind of napping and they walk right. around that and every once in a blue moon they'll come up and they'll get a breath and then go back down so they kind of go into a a semi sleep state till the right. weather warms up so I would imagine pro possibly that if we're dealing with reptilian creatures in these places they may be doing something similar rather than full hibernation yeah. Exactly. And so you, you know, there is always, uh, I, I don't know anything else. Because even in downtown Detroit, um, you still have areas where the grass grows up through the concrete. You still have areas where deer walk, you know, down the roads. So just because a, a place is industrial, you know, level um, population, that doesn't push out nature. Nature will find its way in. And so with the Great Lakes, um, because they are so huge and massive, I do think that there is the possibility of a breeding population of, of different creatures. And when we're talking lake monsters, um, a lot of people jump to like the, the picture of Nessie, you know, in their head. They always think the plesiosaur, the plyosaur, um, they think those marine reptiles. But from all of my research into the Great Lakes, I found that there's like five different groups that I would put our lake monster sightings in. Um, the first, you know, being the plesiosaur, plyosaur, marine reptile. Um, the long necks. Yeah, the long necks, the long necks monsters. Um, that is, that's just one group. Then you have giant turtles would, that people have had sightings of. Would you, you have, think well, that the Meshabishu would fall into that that category? No, no. Um, and actually, it's Inabishu. That's um, the pronunciation that I was given by a linguist in the Native American storyteller communities. It's actually pronounced Inabishu um, because the spellings and the the letters used don't always match up to how it's pronounced. It's very weird, but it's, it's actually um, pronounced Inabishu. I actually put Inabishu in the category of an amalgamation. It's actually several different animals combined um, that create the image of this creature because you've got, with Inabishu, you have a dragon-type creature or a panther-type creature with this long, spiky rip tail. Um, some descriptions give him antlers. 
kind of some descriptions give him a seaweed mane. He usually has claws. Sorry, I had to get into that. Um, and he is, there, there's like five different water, you know, dragon amalgamation monsters. Um, so they have their own group for me. Um, so now we've got the, we've got the, the long necks, the, the, the marine reptile um, category. We've got the giant turtles, um, which, you know, I, I've gotten several different reports. Uh, everything from a um, snapping turtle type creature to a bioluminescent um, purple and yellow turtle that uh, was known in like the Lake Michigan, Leelanau um, Lake area. You've got your amalgamations. You have your giant fish um, because there are stories of the giant sturgeons um, from Native American folklore. And then you have what I classify as the sea serpents, which are usually described as these big, long, tree trunk-sized um, snakes that would go undulating through the water. And sometimes they had um, sails on their backs. Sometimes they had, you know, um, these you know long um, fins and tails and stuff like that. But they were always described as being serpentine and being the thickness of either a tree trunk or a um, whiskey barrel. And so and they, they come in all different colors. So there's, there's um, anything from, you know, pure black to um, blue with brown spots. Um, there are, you know, a lot of different definitions and, and descriptions on them. So those are my five categories. Um, that I have found that the, the lake monsters um, fall into. And there are a couple, um, there's like one case of like an octopus-like creature in the Duluth area. Um, wow. that a gentleman who, he, was fall, he fell off of a racing yacht and he said that a tentacle wrapped around his leg and was pulling him under. Now, that could have very well have been um, very long seaweed that you know, we know grows in the, in the Great Lakes, but he described it as being an octopus um, with a tentacle. So that is the, the report that, you know, um, is on the, on the paper. That seaweed you're talking about occurs in Lake Champlain, too. I've actually seen it with my own eyes while I was swimming in the lake. And, and the, you know, the thing that um, seaweed is actually very interesting because we have uh, within... 10 minutes of my house, we have two really nice metro parks, um, Kensington um, uh, Park, and then we have Island Lake Park across the, the expressway from it. Now, uh, Island Lake has very thick forests of seaweed um, in the deeper parts of the lake, and I remember, I want to say it was 15, 20 years ago, a person went missing who was swimming while they later found them wrapped up in the seaweed. So what happens is the seaweed, you, you think you can swim through it. Unfortunately, when it wraps around a limb and the more you wrestle with it and the more you able to get with it, the tighter it holds you until you just can't, you know, get to the surface and breathe. And it has a lot to do with the, the, 
fluidity of the, the seaweed itself and the water around it. So as it's moving back and forth between the water, with the wind fluid vibrates in a wind, it puts on almost a, a um, entity, you know, of its own. And if something, you know, is moving through it, then it's wraparound and it would kind of secure itself to you. Um, and then you're, you're, you're done for. So I, I can see how theory, you know, would come to play with the octopus theory. Yeah. Um, are you familiar with a book called Invisible Residence by Ivan Sanderson? Uh, no, I have not read that one yet. Well, that's his book about UFOs, about underwater UFOs, and I think a lot of the material he has in his book comes from the Great Lakes. I know some of the reports, I believe, are from Lake Superior. Yeah, Lake Superior, Lake Superior has several um, very well-known UFO reports, including the one um, where the, I think it was the F, 89, was it, um, was sent to basically um, engage the, the UFO, and radar showed that the two ships made contact, the, the, uh, the jet fighter was never seen again, but the UFO anomaly moved off into northern airspace and they never recovered the wreck of the, the jet, um, the fighter jet again. Um, there are some reports on Lake Michigan, but what I have found fascinating in my research, um, I just got done reading the book Gateway to Oblivion uh, by Hugh Conklin, and he talks about the Marysburg vortex, but also a lot about the UFO activity that was there, there was a time span between the, the late 60s and into the mid-70s where UFOs were seen all around um, the Lake Ontario um, lake itself, but also the shorelines, and up to like you know, 30 miles inland, people were, were reporting these different lights and flying objects. Farmers were, were reporting um, damages to their, their different crops that they were growing um, and reporting seeing, you know, what they thought was, um, you know, somebody's truck or a tanker truck, you know, because they thought they were spraying out in their fields and come to find out that there was actually a, a UFO that had a few acres in the ground. Uh, these, these are also, um, it covers a little bit of Lake Erie, but it, it mostly focuses on Lake Ontario. So I, found that book very fascinating because um, he actually, you know, he was giving, um, you know, the dates and the people who were, who had reported these sightings, which is very refreshing when you're a researcher because it's, anybody could say, well, second saw on January 15th, you know, 1941, a blue and purple and white, you know, lighted, you know, uh, cigar-shaped object floating above, you know, the lake three miles away. Anybody can make up a report like that, but when you get actual names and dates and locations, that's, that's more meat, you know, and potatoes. Yeah. 
Um, so where exactly are you located? I, I think you're originally from Michigan, right? I, I am uh, in Michigan. I've always lived in Michigan. Um, I, I will probably always live in Michigan. Um, I, I love it here. I do love to travel, so that's why um, I live. I'm centrally located in between Ann Arbor, Flint, Detroit, and Lansing. Um, in a nice little, uh, I wouldn't say it's farmy, because I've got like Myers and McDonald's and Taco Bell and stuff like that within five minutes of my house, but I do live on a country road, and it's wonderful. Um, don't have to, you know, rack everything up at night. Uh, usually my my two big German Shepherds and my county horse master are enough to scare anybody off. But um, I live in Michigan, and that is my base of operations, and then I just travel. I travel a lot. <laughs> yeah, so we were talking the other day about the whale and walrus and seal bones that have been found in Michigan, and you said to me that you had a theory about that. Yeah, I, well, I do, and it's because, and it's from talking to um, a good friend of mine who's also a Native American storyteller, and actually talking to um, not historians, but Native American historians, and they have shed so much light on, on different aspects because when you when you open there's a there's a book on Mich Michigan fossils and um, they state in there that yes whale bones and seal bones and walrus bones have been found in Michigan but that's all they tell you they were found in these different areas and they belong to this you know these the species that it's from originated in, in this time period. So that's all the information you get. But when you look who was here on the land before the English and French settlers came, it was the Native Americans. So the theory that I am embracing more and more is these, these fossils, these bone fragments that are found are not because the animal died in that location, it's because a Native American tribe found these resources, because that's what they are, they're resources, in a different area, possibly along the, the eastern, you know, uh, coast of, of North America, or along some of the, the um, rivers that, you know, come from the sea into um, Canada, the Great Lakes areas. They found these resources, whether it was the, the animal had just died from washing shore, because we know that happened. In modern day, we do know that whales will wash up on shore. Yep. Or they will beach themselves. Well, I've... So uh, when, oh, go ahead. When, when you find a commodity like that, because you have to, you have to think in their, process, in their mind process, to them, a beached whale is not only food source, a, um, the blubber is used for, for oil, for making fires, for, you know, providing light at night for protection, but the bones, those whale bones are huge, massive, and if you put a bunch of those together, you've got a perfect structure for a large teepee or, you know, to put the pelts over 
Yeah. And you have a, you now have a, a very, you know, wonderful um, building material. Yeah. Well, and I would... because it's shaped, it can be pulled by several, you know, it can be pulled over land masses. So, and they're, they're very strong. So you could you can make that from you know making it as your 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 TV your tent to making it into a a sling to pull. Yeah. And so that I think some of these fossils showed up here in Michigan and in the Great Lakes area. I don't think that the animal actually died here. Yeah. I think that the resources of it, the bones, the teeth, the hide, the meat, the blubber, yeah. was transported. You know, over, um, you know, especially the bones and the teeth were transported over a long period of time to this location. And once they no longer met their, you know, the needs, yeah. then they were discarded and left and moved on. Now, we do know that um, here in Michigan, our, our state fossil is, I believe, the, the mastodon. Uh huh. I want to say, I think it's Mastodon because uh, we actually have both of the, we have the Mastodon and the Mammoth um, mm -hmm. fossils here at the, the Ann Arbor um, Museum of History. But that is our, our state um, fossil. Yeah. Well, reading, reading in the scientific state, literature about uh, these Michigan fossils, they were originally thought to possibly be uh, evidence that the Champlain Sea, the prehistoric sea that Lake Champlain is a remnant portion of, might have expanded into Michigan but, Michigan, but then they were radiocarbon dated and found to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 600 years old. So the general theory now is exactly what you're talking about, is that they were transported by Indians from another region to that area based on the radiocarbon dating. Yes, and that, that, that is what um, my theory is. Now, we all know, you know, that, that throughout history, the barter and trade system um, was, you know, de demanded on, you know, goods and, you know, what was needed. So it's possible that um, scouts from, you know, different parts of the United States encountered um East, you know, coast um, tribes, and this was a barter that they did. You know, yeah. we'll trade you what you have, corn or whatever, and you might be interested in these big bones that we find um, along the, the shoreline. They make really good um, tools for building your your um, your tents, your teepees, or you can turn them into a sled, and they're easily pulled because they're smooth. And they're very circular, and you know if you strap this and that to them, so you can see how the process works out. That items that um, you know some people might collect today were very highly in demand, you know, in in the prehistoric times, in you know um, the early Native American times when these were you know a godsend when they found them. Uh, what are your what are the most compelling lake monster individual reports that you know of from the Great Lakes region that you find compelling? I think that 
um, the the giant sturgeon ones because the you know most biologists will tell you that the Great Lakes sturgeons that they have encountered are within you know the six to eight you know foot area. But when you look at sturgeon throughout the world, um, a 15-foot sturgeon is not unheard of in some areas. So I do think that giant sturgeon are still a possibility in the Great Lakes. Because the Great Lakes are huge, and even though we have lots and lots of um, ship activity on them, they're not covering every inch of the lake every single minute. So it's very easy for a creature to come up, get a breath of air, and go back down. Because Lord knows, I have sat on the piers um, in Grand Haven, Holland, uh, Muskegon, and watched the water. And how many times have I seen a fish come up, you know, uh, and break the surface? If it's spawning, you'll see them. If not, you, you don't see anything except for the wave activity. And an occasional, you know, um, packet of air coming up. Yeah. And you know, the Great Lakes um, are not crystal clear. You, it, it, it takes a very clear, calm day for you to see anything beneath the lake's um, surface. And even when we do get ice, um, it's, it's, you know, some some places will freeze over. Other places, like on, on the shoreline of Lake Michigan, on the Michigan side, it creates these ice boulders that smash against the shoreline. So um, it, nothing wants to be caught in that because you're literally getting battered um, to death with these uh, bowling ball or bigger size, um, you know, boulders of ice. So what I think is possible um, and like you said, you know, depending on the size of prey, things, you know, if you don't need that huge mass of size for protection or for speed um, and catching your prey anymore, then things tend to scale down. So I do think it's possible that the lake sturgeons um, can reach, you know, sizes bigger than what has been reported. Well, they're bottom feeders anyway, so they wouldn't be coming up. To, to the surface right. much, right. except maybe during spawning periods, they come into rivers. Right. And, and sturgeon, um, sturgeon and guy are very hard to um, catch on a line anyways because of their bony, you know, their, their maws and jaws are very bony. So it's really hard to, like, put your, you know, get your hook into that and real pop. Plus, they are very strong. So I think that the, you know, there is the possibility of the, of the large, um, giant, you know, bitsroom. I also think that there is the possibility for very large turtles. Yeah. Because um, I have seen them inland. I, it was probably, I want to say, 15 years ago. Um, but I, as I was driving down a road, I had to come to a complete stop because there was a snapping turtle the size of a semi truck tire. In the middle of the road, taking his good old sweet time crossing it, um, and luckily I stopped on my side and blocked traffic, and the person on the other side of the road stopped, and so we gave we gave and I, I'm you know this is probably a turtle that's you know 200 years old, 
because of his size. Yeah, they we have long lives. His, yeah, we, we gave him his time to move across the road and back into the swamp marsh on the other side. Now that's, you know, that's inland. That's, you know, um, my local community seeing a, a snapping turtle the size of a semi-truck tire, and he was every inch of it. Um, there's no telling, you know, in different areas of, of um, the Great Lakes or um, even the tributaries that come, you know, inland, you know, turtle size, what could be living there? You know, there may be bigger species um, or, you know, individuals of the species in those areas that are just, you know, that's their territory to live. You, you may see them, you may not. Um, yeah. But, you know. Well, there are old stories yeah. of alligator guards in Lake Erie. And they can get, alligator guards get bigger than the normal long-nosed guards. They can get eight feet long, and they're very alligatorish looking giant fish. So it's possible they may have a part in this, too. Right, right. Especially if you have, you know, when you consider the size of one, now put, you know, two of those together as either a mating pair or two rival males um, trying to impress a female, and you had people catching glimpses of this from from the top of the water. That you know that is something that you know if if you don't know your species, you're you're you're, you're jumping to conclusions. You're like, what did I just see? Yeah. Um, it's it, you know it's interesting. You know what you see above the water and what is below the water. Um, you know, what the interpretation is, and, you know, um, case in point, there have been uh, numerous reports of moose that dive under, that can dive up to 20 feet underneath the water because they're eating the seaweed and the... Yeah, I've seen an actual video of a moose swimming underwater. Okay, so... Let's say you're you're one of these um, early settlers who are, you know, paddling across the, the Great Lakes in your dugout canoe, and you have this moose that you've never seen before. This is a new species on land. You know, the natives know about it, but you don't. So you see this moose come up, and all you see is the head, the back, the horns of it, and it's draped in seaweed. What is going to be the tale that you tell when you get into the next port? You saw a sea monster with a horse-like head and horns. Exactly. That had a slimy mane. Yeah. And was very aggressive towards your canoe because, let's face it, moose are aggressive anyways, and you're going paddling a path at what they're going to do. It's going to react. They, uh, moose are very territorial. Um, so I could see it trying to attack a canoe. And people would be freaked out. It, it yeah. would be, you know, I I would be freaked out if that happened. And you know, you know uh, you're kayaking along, and all of a sudden a moose pops up within 20 feet of you. You're going to be like, oh shit, what the hell? Yeah, and there are a lot of persistent stories about bull sharks making their way into the Great Lakes. What do you and think of those stories? Yes. So the only actual report we have of a bull shark 
in the Great Lakes is a very um, obscure report. It was in a book called um, Shark Attacks of the World, and it occurred in 1955. Um, a young boy was swimming off of um, the shore uh, you know, near Chicago in Lake Michigan. Now, reports say that witnesses did see a shark-like fin and tail after the boy was attacked swimming off. Now, the only thing about this is I've actually done the due diligence of contacting hospitals in the, in the local area um, and seeing if the reports go back to 1955. And nowhere have I found a report of any doctor um, doing an interview with the newspapers or anything like that saying that they treated somebody for a shark, a sizable shark bite, because the shark that they're talking about would have been over 12 feet long. That would have been a very, you know, massive um, bite mark. Um, and plus, the I do believe that it didn't take the full chunk of, of um, flesh off of his leg. Yeah. Well, there are, um, there are it, authenticated reports of bull sharks in the Mississippi River as far north yeah. as Illinois. So, yeah. you know. Now the, so, the, so the thing you have to understand about the Mississippi River coming into the Great Lakes is after 1955, a series of, of gates and dams and um, blockades were put in. Yeah. Because there was the worry that aquatic animals would move up into the Great Lakes. And so these series of rocks and dams were put in place. And that stops, you know, the, the bull shark is only going to swim as far into fresh water as it can. Once it encounters a physical barrier, then it's going to, you know, it's, it'll stay in that area for a while. But then it's eventually going to make its way back the way it came, um, as long as the water is available for it to swim through. Now, in the Great Lakes area, as I said before, the Great Lakes, um, the, the warmest time period for the Great Lakes is from, I would say, late July into the beginning of September. Um, that's when the shoreline area of the water where most people go to swim is acceptably, you know, um, it's not bathtub warm, but it's, it's above freezing. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Now that's, that's going from the shoreline out about 15 feet, which usually is, you know, about up to mid chest for most people, depending on what part of the Great Lakes um, or Lake Michigan you're going into. Uh, I'm not sure about Lake you know, Erie because it's, it's shallower, but um, there's other things that happen in Lake Erie that I think would destroy a, a bull shark. Um, so bull sharks, as everybody probably knows, is um, one of the species that can live in salt water and can live in fresh water because they, their bodies can adjust to it. The blood chemistry, the, they can change it. Yeah, it, it's an osmosis system yeah. for them. Yep. Um, and they, they live in fresh water for as long as they have a source of food. 
Now, the problem with that in the Great Lakes is bull sharks are a subtropic species. They, they operate wonderfully around the shoreline of uh, Florida, the Gulf of Mexico. Those are really warm waters. We're talking about the Great Lakes, where uh, even on a hot summer's day, if you fall off a boat within half an hour, you're probably going into hypothermia because the temperatures are so cold. A subtropic shark would do the same thing. They would be able to function in the warmer current streams around the shoreline, but they would be seen because they have that you know huge dorsal fin. Um, the further out in the lake, the deeper out in the lake they go, the colder it gets, and the harder it becomes to function. Yeah. And sharks, in order to breathe, have got to swim. So if you're getting colder and your body is shutting down, your ability to swim is, is, is going out. Your ability to breathe is diminishing. So if we had as many shark reports as people say, we'd have a lot more, um, I would think, shark bodies showing up in, um, on the shorelines dead yeah. or caught. Um, because the, the Great Lakes are... are Really interesting about how they, um, where when the, the ice comes, what it pushes back out. And so you you sometimes get really cool glimpses at shipwrecks and um, stuff like that because the ice will actually, from the wave and, and ice activity, it will actually push it up um, onto shore and you can see it. Now, that's just Lake Michigan where it's a possibility for them to fill up the Mississippi um, if all the gates and locks were open and actually get into Lake Michigan. They could possibly, um, if, if it was a really determined shark and then it was a, it was a above average, you know, summer, they could because Lake Michigan and Lake Huron are, are attached. There's no barrier going through the... the um, They're essentially one piece. Yeah, it's one piece. So it could possibly swim, you know, um, Huron down in. The difference between Lake Huron and Lake Michigan is Lake Huron has boulders for bottom, you know, the bottom of it. Um, particularly in the in the the shoreline area, I know this because I've kayaked on it um, to go out to turn a rock. And it's just boulder after boulder. And they tell people to wear their safe jackets um, for a reason, because if your kayak or canoe capsizes, you're within a few feet of boulders underwater, your head's going to smash. Those are probably glacial and, erratics moved by glaciers, where the glacier melted and yeah, dropped the rocks. Yep, and they're, they're, and they're huge. And the whole shoreline is, is, you know, rocks and boulders so it's you know if if the shark were to encounter any of the very strong storms that we have it would be getting bashed against these um these boulders now going up into let's say that the the shark made it through lake michigan through the straits of mackinac which is which is open water i've been there the um and it decided to go north, and it navigated its way up the St. Mary's River into Lake Superior. 
that is definitely screwed then because Lake Superior is the deepest and coldest yeah. of the Great Lakes. Thousand feet and deep. It, it, it is, in all intents and purposes, a inland sea. Yeah. It, it has own activity. It, obey, it, it obeys by its own code of you know ethics um, rules. You know she she does her own thing. So the the shark would would not last very long in Lake Superior. Um, for it to get into Lake Erie, Lake Ontario, um, then it would be coming be coming through the St. Lawrence Causeway, and depending on um, how the water is per, you know, that season or that time period that it's coming up, um, it could get trapped in one part of, of um, you know, the lakes or, um, it, it's, you know, it, it's not very possible for uh, a bull shark to live in the Great Lakes. Um, now, Lake Erie is very well known for the algae bloom that um, occurs in it. And this year, I think it was particularly bad because of all the, um, we had, I believe we had like eight weeks of rain this past, you know, in 2019 from spring into summer, we had, um, like 18 or no, we had eight weeks of, of rain. It rained almost every day. So all that runoff when you do Lake Erie creates this huge algae bloom, which is toxic. Yeah. So toxic that it's killing the fish. And they're warning people, do not, you know, you know, if you see dead fish, don't, you know, get them and eat them. Um, they're dead for a reason. They're usually, usually those algae blooms are caused by phosphorus from runoff yeah. from fertilizer on farms. Yep, and that's the runoff from the rainwater coming in. But I believe this year it was the algae bloom was astronomical. It was like miles wide. It happens in Lake Champlain too. Yeah. So if if that algae bloom kills the small fish, a shark isn't going. A shark is a fish. It's not going to fare any better just because it's a bigger species. Um, it's still going to get exposed to these toxins it's still going to absorb those toxins it's still going to be at the mercy of those toxins and it's probably going to die um and i would think i'm like eerie would have more of a possibility of finding a carcass because it is a shallower yeah uh, lake yeah it's got a lot of surface area but it's not that deep right It's, it's very shallow um much more shallow than than any of the other uh, of the Great Lakes. So, no matter you know what lake you're looking at, the possibility of a shark actually living in it, thriving in it, and surviving one of our Great Lakes winters is very impossible. It's it's well, um, one type of regional <laughs> shark that does live in cold water is the Greenland shark, but they're not known to tolerate freshwater conditions. So I think you can right. take them off the table. The, the, the salmon shark is also a, a cold water shark, but there again, um, the most they can do is brackish water, where they follow the salmon um, into the rivers, you know, for for as long as they can detect their salt water, and they will eat their fill, and then they go back out into into the salt water. So 
um, you know, the, the bull shark is the only shark that can actually live, live in fresh water. There, yes. There's other species that can tolerate the brackish water, which is where salt water and fresh water meet. Yep. But the fish is the only one who can actually exist in it and thrive. But it has to be, um, you know, it, it can't be a case where it, um, the water ever gets cold enough to freeze. Do you find any of the photographic evidence from Lake Superior or from Lake Pepin to be compelling, or do you think they're all kind of questionable? Um, the photographic for, for what? For Pressy and uh, oh, okay. Peppy. Well, I get the start. Um, I, I know that there's a lot of hoaxers out there, but I always, when, when I'm when I'm looking at any photographs, whether it's for for lake monsters, for Bigfoot, Dogman, pterodactyls, um, any of that, I, I first take a long look at the picture or the video footage and see if I can observe natural behavior of what the species you know behavior would be what their locomotion would be um and then if anything red flags then i start picking apart so with some of the photos that i've seen now granted well you know it's always gray or it's always shaky um you know there there's you know the possibility that what they saw and were filming, it could have been a natural species, but um, one of the things that I, um, this course that I'm going to start teaching next week, um, one of the things that I, I have looked into is the um, weird ways that the, that the waves um, of the Great Lakes, be, you know, act and behave, and there are several wave anomalies that occur that can give the, you know, the, the look of, um, like something's swimming through the water. Yeah, there are sashes the, and uh, solitons and all sorts of wave phenomena like that. Yeah. The sash the waves are, are very, because um, I've watched a lot of different video footage of it, and you're watching these waves that are creating a, a, a um, wave as they're going back through the water against themselves and I'm like okay so if I was just sitting there watching that and I didn't know that there was a you know this ability of the waves I would definitely go and do something in this water um you know it's it's unless something is above the water it's really hard to to just kind of because there's a you know there's any possibility of things underneath the water um, that we can't see. Yeah. Well, we both recently so, we both recently lost a good friend, Kevin Maywick. Do you have any uh, thoughts about Kevin? You want to pass along? Well, I I was um, I think I I feel the same way everyone did, and I was just devastated. Um, I. And, and I feel kind of guilty because I do, um, I pick up on things. I'm not a psychic psychic, but when Jen 
you know, had first posted that he had come out of surgery and he was doing good, but there was a few things that they're watching. I was like, oh, good. He's out of surgery. He's doing well. And then when she made the second post saying that they were taking him back in, I thought, oh, this is never good. And so I remember um, we went to, that was right around um, Christmas, and we went to, uh, I'm pagan, but my mom um, and uh, her friend are um, Lutheran. And so we had gone to Christmas Eve service, and, and for some reason it popped into my head, um, we need to get out of King prayer for Kevin. So I had, I had, you know, I made the prayer, and I had even asked, you know, um, I had done the little card for prayers, you know, appealing, you know, from the congregation. And I, I felt good about that. And then it was two days later that Jen posted that he had passed. And I just felt so awful. Um, because he was one of the people that, that I could reach out to and say, hey, have you heard about this? Or um, do you know if this person is legit or not? And he was always honest with me. He was always so um, informative, and he would, you know, he would supply me with so much knowledge. Um, and all I had to do was ask, and he was just so wonderful. And you know, part of the thing that I feel guilty about is a couple, couple of summers ago, I were or falls ago, I had gone up to Minnesota um, to pick my mom's German Shepherd up and bring it back. Um, for uh, so that she wouldn't have to bring it back in her car. So I was a couple of days before her, and I thought, um, I've got all this time on my hands to drive, you know, back to Michigan. I'm going to stop at these key spots, and one of them was Rylander because uh, I wanted to get pictures of all the different hot eggs. And Kevin had very graciously extended a, a invitation to me to stop. But I thought, you know, I, I have this German Shepherd. I have my, my little miniature pitcher, Tegan, who travels with me everywhere. I don't want to um, inconvenience them with these two bags. And plus, it was kind of a rainy day, and I was like, we'll just go get pictures of the hot eggs and stuff like that. And next time I'm coming through that area, I'll definitely stop, and I'll hang out with Kevin and Jen. And, uh, you know, they can take me on a tour of the town. And I seem like... Um, due to my travel schedule and I think your schedule, that, you know, didn't happen again. So I, I just felt so bad that I, you know, I had that opportunity to, you know, stop and hang out with him and Jen. And because of the, the circumstances that, you know, were around the travel, I, I couldn't do it. And I just, I always look at that as a lost opportunity um, to sit and talk, you know, shop with him and Jen and, um, you know, because they were like, oh, you have to come, you know, take a look at the library we have and uh, all the reports. And I was like, oh, that, you know, yeah, I should have taken advantage of that. Um, but I, I think that there's a huge void left. Oh, absolutely. Um, Definitely. And he was, he was not knowing him personally, personally, like, you know, not talking to him every day or seeing him in person every day. Uh, the impressions I got of Kevin was he was an honest, uh, wonderful, you know, man who was very passionate about all things Lake Monster, um, uh, cryptozoology, paranormal. Um, he actually, he was the one who uh, 
the Supernatural magazine that uh, he would write for. And, he, you know, he told me, oh, you should write for these. And, and I finally, you know, got an article out to him um, this past November. I was so thrilled about it. And so he, he gave me a lot of knowledge. And there's, there's um, just no way to repay him. Um, you know, the, the different information that he gave me. And we're not just talking like, um, like you know, uh, prehistoric, you know, reptiles or marine reptiles or stuff like that. Um, you know, asking about, you know, so how, who do I contact for this event? Or um, who do you know uh, that, uh, you know, this different, um, like Facebook group? And, you know, is it legit? Are they hoaxers? Or, and he was always willing to talk and being honest. And um, he didn't know me from, you know, any of the other cookies while he was out there. But he was always honest with me. I could always ask him, you know, questions about anything, um, you know, within, you know, the cryptos, wild, and paranormal fields. And he was always very honest. And it was so refreshing to, to be able to talk to somebody and have communications with somebody who was not only passionate but knowledgeable about, you know, the stuff that um, he was, you know, interested in researching. Yeah, he and I became very close over the course of the last five years. And we would talk on Facebook like every other day about something, always. So it was really devastating. Like I was always sending like um, messages on Facebook saying, "Hey, I, you know, sorry to bother you, but um, what do you know about this?" Or you know, so I was always kind of apologetic and like taking up his time um, because you know everybody who's a researcher is always like, "Oh, oh, my time, my time, my time." I know that's how I am, so I was always um, very appreciative and very thankful for um, him taking out the time to talk to me, um, you know, whenever uh, I sent him a message. So, I, I saw a post recently, you're writing for some kind of a Bigfoot magazine, right? Yes, so I am the head writer for Squat GQ magazine and also Squatch Digest magazine. Um, they, they're both owned by the same company, but Squatch GQ tends to focus more on um, like the celebrity cryptid, um, you know, interviews. People who have been seen like on the different shows, um, there's um, a, uh, a gentleman who goes by the name of Seth Squatch, I won't pronounce it correctly. Um, and he's a, he dresses as a, a Bigfoot and he plays the saxophone. So we have we've interviewed him. Um, Bowden, the Bigfoot, who is uh, one of my friends down in Ohio. I'll, I'll, I'll throw him a bone there. <laughs> or Moon Pie, as he, he, he likes to snack on. Um, we've done interviews with him. And um, the Squatch Digest, now that focuses more on the scientific um, aspects of Bigfoot encrypted research of um, evidence collecting, the eDNA um, reports and in, in interviews with the researchers and scientists who are recovering that evidence and analyzing it. So um, they're, they're, they're both encrypted, 
but there's there's a little bit of difference in, in the con on in the contents of um, which of what each uh, magazine offers. Uh-huh. So when do you start your college course? Um, I start teaching it next Wednesday, um, February fifth at Owens Community College in Perrysburg, Ohio. Um, the class is from 7 p.m. to 8.30, and it is four weeks long, and each week is, is um, different topics. Um, I believe Lake Monsters and Odd Creatures is week two, I think, or week three. Um, if you look at my Facebook page, I've got a posting up um um, what each week um, is um, in the course catalog. Um, not um, those were the outlines, but I um, will probably be adding in more information um, because there's um, there's other topics in the you know that go under the heading of paranormal Great Lakes, um, like pirates. We did have pirates here on the Great Lakes. Um, which is a fun uh, topic to talk about. Um, would this been, would would this have been during the the French and Indian War Revolutionary War period? Well, actually, some of them were as recent as the 1800s because there was um, there's a lot of uh, interesting things that I found out, like um, the pirates would sometimes go into the lumber shipping areas where uh, the lumbermen were cutting down the wood, stripping it and getting it ready to to uh, send out. And they would just come up at night, they would steal all the lumber and sail off with it and go to a port on the other side of the, the Great Lake and sell it. So they were basically lumber thieves. Yes. Mm. There was a lot of piracy on Lake Champlain during the Revolutionary War period and the War of 1812 because due to the war, the United States had embargoed trade between Vermont, New York, and Canada. And a lot of the economies around Lake Champlain depended on trade with Canada. So they were using piracy to continue that trade. Yep, and you know, it, you know, when you when you look at the the histories um, uh, of how things you know were done and what it led to, um, it, it's so. You know, sometimes you're just like, oh, the greed of humans. But other times you're like, wow, that's really interesting. Um, you know, that that's where this term came from, or that's why this is in place now. Um, you know, things that happened in the past, like um, the term land lovers, where, you know, most people would think it was a term for people who loved being on land. But in the Great Lakes, it was um, the lumberjacks. That's what the pirates would call the lumberjacks was land lovers because they were lumberjacks, but they were on land, and they were stealing from them. So they would just, <laughs> uh, they, they, you know, would just make up um, these terms for people, and, you know, that's, uh, you know, how we have it today. So it's, it's really interesting how, um, 
the past affects, you know, the present. One one thing that just popped into my head, I, I wonder if you're familiar with, is there's a story from 1793 in a place called Fort Recovery of them killing a giant snake. Do you know this story? I, I probably do because there's there's a couple of different reports of um, sea serpents being encountered and either they were killed by shooting at them or I believe there's, uh, there's a report in the Detroit River where the, the captain killed it with a harpoon hook or something like that. Um, there, there's several different uh, variations of the story. So um, what I found is if it makes for a good story in this port, then in the next lake over, it's going to make an even better story and probably get me a couple of few beers. Yeah, you have to be careful with those old newspaper stories because a lot of them were just filler to fill up um, space. My my time stamp for... um, I guess my BS detector is um, the P.T. Barnum um, era. So anything before P.T. Barnum, I pay a little bit more attention to because if people were making a report, whether it was in the in the water or on land, if they were ma- making a report of a creature attacking them or their livestock or their, their um, livelihood, if they were going into the local judge or magistrate or police officer and they were making this report, it was generally because they were concerned about not only their lives, but their family, their, you know, their neighbors, their livestock. They were, that's what they were concerned about was this creature was going to cause them hardship. And that's why they were reporting it. They didn't want to be singled out as that crazy guy who saw the thing in the lake or, you know, The more documentation you have of a story outside of just one newspaper story, the more credible it seems. that in Vermont too. Some of the smaller lakes, the stories are much less credible than the ones from Lake Champlain and say Lake Memphremagog, you know? Yeah, this goes in the hoax, you know, uh, pile, but 
We're having some kind of a technical problem with your microphone. Can you try readjusting it? Hello? All right, we were having technical difficulties there, and I paused the recording. But everything seems to be back now, so go ahead with what you were talking about. So, uh, I was saying that I give credits to the courts and judicial courts. Yeah. One case that's very much like that is the reports of the sea serpent from Gluster. From 1817, 1818, there's a lot of court depositions about that, which seems to make the story rather credible. Now, I have heard of that report, but I've never actually to investigate it. Um, I do know that they have they have the, the, the water monster reports, and then there is... Um, some type of um, spectral dog um, that's there, too. Well, in, I never heard about that. that. I didn't know about that. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. It was, there's an old um, village there. I, I think it's, it's mostly just bricks and mortar that's left over. But supposedly there was a woman who left who lived there even after the town had had gone away and she had she kept dogs around there to protect her well after she died um i guess the spirits of the dogs remained on to guard that location and her remains so i might not have the the story completely right but i that's i believe the the ghost dog story from that area um and it's that is supposed to be where that location is is supposed to be very close to the shoreline point where some people have spotted the the water monster. Hmm. There are a lot of stories of spectral hounds from the UK. I'm sure you're aware of that. Uh, actually, there's a lot here in the United States too. <laughs> wow. Hmm. Well, do you? Uh... As far as cryptozoology goes, do you subscribe to the idea that most of what people are seeing are flesh and blood animals, or do you think there's some validity to this idea of zooforms and uh, animal poltergeist and uh, paranormal creatures? Oh, yes, I, I definitely do. Um, with the pterosaur reports that um, pop up you know, every once in a while, and the plesiosaur marine reptile reports that pop up, I do think it's quite possible that people are seeing a, a brief replay of what happened right before the animal died. And if it's possible for human spirits to exist, then it's very possible for animal spirits to exist. And I think that the these larger creatures that people are witnessing and reporting, I think that is the case scenario. Now, I'm not saying that there's not the possibility of there somewhere on this earth being living pterosaurs or 
marine reptiles or even dinosaurs. I just think that they are scaled down to a more reasonable size in competition with the food that they're they're collecting to eat and the habitats that they're living in. Yeah. Isolated populations would tend to adjust to the available food supply and downsize over right. the course of time if they're an isolated population. Because you look at, so the, the biggest creature, animal on the, on the planet is a whale. A, a plankton feeding whale, too. Um, actually, I think the sperm whale is is bigger than the blue whale, or is the blue whale bigger than the sperm? Oh, the blue whale is bigger than the sperm. The blue whale can get about 90 feet long. Sperm okay. whales, I think, max out about 60. Okay, so, so the blue whale, um, I don't know what the population numbers are right now, but you don't, like, you can't necessarily stand on um, the beach on Florida and look out and see a blue whale swimming by. You will see some sharks, um, you know, smaller fish species, but you don't see, um, unless you're in the, you know, along the migratory paths of these creatures, you don't see them. But they're still there. Yeah. We know that they're there because yeah. uh of the, the, you know, whaling regulations to prevent them from being slaughtered and removed from history. Um, but we know that they're there. We know that these huge, massive creatures are out there in the, in the oceans, you know, swimming, uh, eating, breathing, making more baby, you know, whales. Um, but we don't see them every single day. Yeah. Unless well. you're in that part of the ocean that you're seeing them. And every couple of years they find a new species of whale, usually a beach whale. So we know there's unknown air-breathing mammals living out there in the ocean that we haven't found yet. Exactly. So, ocean-wide, I do believe that there's the potential for any possibilities. I do believe that there's possible um, small populations of the megalodon sharks still out there. And people who encounter these may just think it's a gigantic great white when in actuality they're encountering a megalodon. Um, you know, and then there's a then there's the possibility of ships, uh, you know, small boats, uh, sailing vessels that go missing, and we never get to interview the crew as to what happened, what the circumstances of their boat um, being destroyed were. There's a possibility that a, a marine-related species is, is, you know, behind that. Yeah. So tell us what the the Great Lakes Triangle is. I've heard the, the, the term, but I'm not really familiar with what exactly it entails. So when, when I first started doing my research, all of the reports focused on Lake Michigan and an area being triangle, you know, um, shape that went from Ludington, Michigan, across Lake Michigan to Minnetonk, Wisconsin, then at a slanted angle down to Benton Harbor, Michigan, and then straight back up to Ludington. There were 
um, were a lot of odd occurrences that happened within the parameters of, of that destination, including a, a commercial air flight going missing, and the only remains that were found was about a suitcase full of, of clothing um, or materials. Um, no wreckage of the plane was found. Um, just very bizarre. But in doing my research, I also found that there is a triangle in Lake Huron that covers um, very near the, the Saginaw Bay area. And one of the, the reports that sticks out um, in my mind is a Air Force plane um, crashed in that area. And before it, it impacted with the water, the pilot was able to eject. Um, and he was, from, from all eyewitness accounts, they should have been able to rescue him. He was able to remove the parachute. He was, he had, you know, um, had a flotation device on. But every time they got clear enough to grab him, he was pulled further out into the water. And then he was pulled under the water. And they were never able to rescue him. Now, the third area that I found is actually in Lake Ontario, and that is the Marysburg Vortex, which um, is is talked about quite a bit in the book um, Gateway to Oblivion by Hugh Cochran. And it's very interesting because Lake Ontario, um, he said that the primary focus is the Marysburg vortex area, but due to different energies that are underneath the water, it can move. So Lake Ontario in a, in a, itself has become somewhat of a, a paranormal vortex where unexplained things have happened to um, any size of ship. I mean, you know, we're talking from from huge freighters that go haywire and pretty much destroy themselves um, to coming across schooners that uh, were sailing in front of you 10 minutes ago and now uh, you can't find them. They, they literally disappeared in front of you or coming across ships where the ship is totally intact but there's no crew. Are you familiar with atmospheric refraction, mirages? Yes, I am. Because sometimes they can cause the appearance of ghost ships that disappear. They, they can, but the, the one um, with the one account that I'm thinking of, uh, that I read in the book um, Gateway to Oblivion, both of the ships were leaving port at the same time. And so the one ship was just slightly ahead, like a half mile ahead of the other ship. They had seen them leave port. They knew that they were actually physically there, and then they were gone. And there was no wreckage, no nothing. Oh, interesting. Now, I, I have heard stories, maybe you know something about this, about a headless ghost at Old Fort Niagara near Niagara Falls. Do you know anything about that? Um, 
I, I think I saw it as one of the chapters in one of the books that I've been reading, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Um, my thoughts are it's probably a, a soldier um, who lost his head during one of the, the um, battles, and he's still on patrol. Um, there's there's so many haunted locations, uh, lakeshore-wise, along the Great Lakes with not just the lighthouses, but, you know, areas where um, lifeboats had actually come on shore with the dead remains of the crew. And <clears throat> because they were finally able to make landfall, that's the area that the, the spirits are attached to. Um, I've, I've encountered reports of ghost horses. Um, oh, that's interesting. On, different, on the different islands, because when... Um, and this had this had to do with uh, a fort. Also, the, the the fort became part of it was Canadian, but then it became American. So the settlers had to um, give over the fort to the uh, U.S. So they were in the process of leaving, and one of the the ship crews or um, ships. The whole crew and um, the passengers all got drunk, and they beached themselves on an island. Well, they were all saved, but one of the gentlemen had to leave his his carriage horse um, on the island, and the horse ended up being the only inhabitant on the island, but he had fresh water to drink, he had shelter, he had all the grass and, and, um, you know, food he could eat. So to, to the horse, it was a paradise, but to this day, people still claim that they'd see this white horse galloping along the shoreline, um, just having the best time of its life. But there's also a report in Lake Erie and sometimes, or no, Lake Ontario, and sometimes you hear it um, on the Erie side of uh, the Black Dog. Huh. And it's said that um, when passing through the canals, this Newfoundland fell off the boat and instead of rescuing the dog, uh, the ship's crew just let it drown. And so when they tried to go through the canal gates, the gates were actually blocked, and they found that it was the actual, the, the mangled up body of the dog was blocking them from going through. So since then, if a black dog is seen running across your deck and jumping into the water on the other side, it's said to be the curse of the black dog, and the ship almost always um, either wrecks, sinks, or comes very close to it, and there's only a partial um, portion of the crew that, you know, survives. Uh-huh. How much of this do you think is mostly just folk tales, and how much do you think there might be reality behind some of them? With the, with the Great Lakes, um, because they are... I think the Great Lakes themselves are actually paranormal. Just because of there, there is so much time and space and energy um, circulated around them, I think there's any possibility with the Great Lakes. I do think that there are ghost ships um, and ghost creatures. Um, I do think that there was, you know, there is still the potential for lake monsters of some kind to be in this lake. Um, and those lake monsters could very well be the waves themselves. Yeah. Um, the, the, the factor of the three sisters alone 
and Lake Superior, which we know have taken down ships. Um, how do you explain that? You know, the three massive waves coming out of nowhere, one after another. Um, you can't tell me that the sh that the lake itself isn't somehow active and has a a mentality to it that it's going to take down and keep whatever it wants. Well, there's a paper. There's a paper I have in my archives somewhere, and it's about how the bottom terrain of a body of water can generate the same waves over and over again or the right conditions because of the bottom contour of the lake. And that yep. a lot of times some of these big lake uh, waves are mistaken for lake monsters. So that might be part of right. what's going on. And what you're calling the three sisters could be the same types of waves being generated over the same types of bottom terrain under the right conditions. Right. Because, you know, the I believe the, the, the deepest part of Lake Superior is over a thousand feet. Yeah. So, that, you know, and, and nobody has actually, you know, been down to these depths to see, you know, what it, we have charts, we have navigational charts that show us, you know, um, what, you know, might be a hazard to the, the shipping canals and yeah. the, the, you know, shipping areas. Um, but actually knowing what's on the bottom of the Great Lakes, um, in Lake Michigan, there's, there's reports of a underwater Stonehenge with a boulder that has a mammoth, um, you know, cut out of it. Yeah. Or carved into um, Well, I know the water uh, levels, the water levels of the Great Lakes have fluctuated over time. And there is evidence that the water levels were lower at certain parts of time in the prehistoric past. So it's entirely possible that these are remains of where people were living when the water level was lower and it the water level rose, and these prehistoric structures became underwater as the water level mm -hmm. rose. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, through the through the centuries, the the shorelines have have you know changed shape, and they've you know they've been sculpted out by the lakes themselves. Um, there's you know there's reports that. Um, like the Phoenicians came into the Great Lakes to get the copper, and they believe this is is possible because they have found a half mile inland, you know, ship buoys where you know they would tie the ships up to. Yeah. Um. And there's also the copper. There's the copper tablets that were, you know, created with the Phoenician language way before any. You know, European settlers here in Michigan thought, oh, hey, this is going to be a good, you know, I'm going to carve this out and, and, you know, say that some prehistoric, you know, civilization, you know, created this and left it here. Yeah. This was before, you know, there was even um, the knowledge that the, the Phoenicians, you know, um, you know, what their language was, what their, you know, dialect was. And there's a lot of stories of Vikings coming further inland, too, and leaving yeah. relics behind. A lot of people believe that. So, tell us about your various books you've written and where you can get them. Um, so, my first book in my cryptozoology series is Lake Monsters and Odd Creatures of the Great Lakes. 
and that is available on Amazon. Um, that covers a lot of the material that we talked about um, today, um, and I might revise it um, depending on like what free time I have. Um, so that was the first book that I came out with. My second book of cryptozoology was Mothman and Other Flying Creatures of the Midwest. Um, that just came out in um, uh, this past summer. Um, it was on the market in um, beginning of uh, September, I want to say. Um, and that focuses on not just Mothman, but on Thunderbirds, Pterosaurs, uh, which are also called Gropens, uh, just gargoyle creatures um, that have been, that I have found reports of throughout the West. So, and this would include um, the reports from Chicago, the recent ones. It, it includes some of those reports. I, I leave a huge question mark in the air about the Chicago reports just because if the, if these sightings, you know, anybody who's ever been to Chicago, um, you know that it's a city that goes 24-7. And so for something big enough to <coughs> that that's human size and flying through the air, I would think that you would have more than just individual reports. You would have not sightings. And so I kind of, I, I give credit to it because there, there, there is the possibility that, you know, there was something seen. Um, but I'm, my thoughts are Chicago is such a busy place and so popular and there's so many people out 24-7. And I've been to Chicago many times, and, you know, it's it's always on the go. Even at 5 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock in the morning, you know, it's still always on the go. The skyline is very well lit because of all of the, the buildings. Um, so you're skeptical. You're where, skeptical that something would be able to hide in a place like that that's exactly. going all the time. Exactly. I, I, I'm kind of skeptical that... What was seen was actually encrypted and not something that was hoaxed. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on the resemblance between Meshabishu and the Hodag? I think that's probably more than just coincidence. There must be a connection of some kind. Well, the, the, the Hodag to me is creepy in the fact that, so Eugene, um, the gentleman who... Uh, supposedly encountered the Hodag first and killed it, um, he then put it on display at the like local carnivals. But when you do the fact-finding, you realize that this was a creature that was made of like different things that he found and put together, and then his sons would get into it, get inside of this you know, creature, and um, would behave like a wild animal. And to me, that's just, oh, that's creepy because you know that that thing had to stink and it had to be like, you know, rotting. And it was, you know, probably like parasites in it um, or on it. And, it. and he didn't just do it with one creature, he made two of them. 
And then he, you know, when when they couldn't find um, any more of them, then he came he came out and said, "Yeah, I kind of hoaxed this, you know." It, it was just for the carnival, and um, but the the pictures, you know, you when you go to to Rhinelander Fountain and you look um, because all over the the city there are different statues side of the the local um, the tourist bureau. There's a huge one. And there is quite a bit of resemblance in between the the Inabishu feature of Lake Superior, the Alta um, Wisconsin Piasca bird or Piasca bird. The Piazza, yes. The, Hode. the Piazza, Piazza was discovered by Jacques Marquette in like early seventeen hundreds, late sixteen hundreds. What was the date on that? So the thing about that is he didn't encounter it. He heard the Native American legends of it. And he saw the painting, the, the petroglyph. Yes. But he he also had heard of Inabishu in Lake Superior. So his description of the creature, I believe, was possibly him combining the, the like, um, aspects of both creatures. Yeah. So you get a very similar looking creature and a lot of historians a lot of researchers now are thinking that the picture the, the picture graph in Alton, Illinois that's carved on the sandstone is actually in a from Lake Superior yeah that's not the original petroglyph that uh, Marquette saw that's a recreation of it allegedly right. So um, they're all very, they're all very, um, they're all very similar. Yeah. But, um, the Hodag, to best describe the Hodag, it's it's like a bulldog with with green, it's a green bulldog, um, with like a wolverine's head, spikes, you know, coming out of its back, yeah. and um, three-toed, you know, quad toes on each foot, and it um. There, there's statues of it all over Rylander, so it, it's, uh, if you're ever in the area, it's very worth stopping and, um, you know, exploring. Looking at, I, have, I have a little hodag on my the dashboard of my um, my car, and I also have a Mosasaur, so. Yeah, um, so it looks like the hodag is a folkloric creature that was based on Inabishu, at the very least. The design came from from the end of issues. Yeah, yeah. Without being able to have a have a one on one interview with um, Eugene, um, because this was back in the eighteen hundreds, um, it's very hard to you know know where he took his um, inspiration from. But I'm guessing that Inabishu and its description added to it, and also it, it depended on what he had available to work with too. Yeah. So wolverines, badgers, um, you know, uh, stuff like that. He had, he had, you know, those available to him to, you know, to work with. Yeah. Um, but still, just creeps me out that his sons had to crawl inside of it and, and you know, act like a monster and you know, just the fact that they're inside that thing. Um, because the reason he he created the second one was the first one started smelling so bad that none of them could stand it. Ah. Uh. Poorly preserved. 
Yeah, well, yeah, back in that, back in the early 1800s, there was, you know, I don't think there was much thought put into how are we going to preserve it. It was just, you know, let's make it work for right now. Yeah. So are you familiar with the story of the alleged baby lake monster carcass from Lake Erie, the so-called Erie baby? Do you know the story of that? Yes, I actually have a, a chapter uh, about that in my book on lake monsters. And the backstory behind that was the gentleman who created it had found a bluebot fish on the shoreline of Lake Erie, and it was dead, but he had, there was a local, uh, there was a taxidermy conference coming up, and he thought he'd create this really cool taxidermy creature for this event. So he took it home, he went through all the methods of, of the preservation of it, and then he added different aspects to it to make it look more like a aquatic, you know, creature, a, a, a monster. While he was, you know, had it on display, different people were coming up, and they thought it was real. So word got out to a creationist who then bought it from the gentleman who did the taxidermy on it, and he was claiming that it was a real-life prehistoric marine reptile that was found in modern day and that it was a baby. The problem about you know the, the the problem with this was he would never let anybody do any DNA testing on it, and eventually word got back to the gentleman who created it in the first place, and he came forward and said no 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 no, that's that's not what this is. It's a lake you know it, I found it on Lake Erie. It was a fish. I turned it into this for a taxidermy you know event. Um, because I wanted to create this, you know. It was a gap. I don't, know it, I don't know if he was doing it for a competition or if it was just for a display item to show off his skills as a taxidermist. But, the, you know, it gave life to this whole baby, you know. Yeah. Story. Well, it got quite a lot of attention in the late 1990s. Especially among the creationists, I think. They still have it at the uh, Creation Evidences Museum in Glen Rose, Texas, but they don't have it on display. I think they're a little embarrassed about it now. Right. Because it, it's been, you know, it's it's been, you know, the truth about it, I don't want to say it's been disproven, but the truth about its creation has come out, and that, you know, that takes away from what they believed it was. We're coming up on the two-hour mark. Do you want to... Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, wrap it up, but I'm just saying, it. Are, I'm, are you getting tired or do you want to keep going? Oh, well, actually, um, I was going to uh, roasting you at dinner <laughs> in, in, you know, uh, relatively soon because my stomach's growling. All right. Um, well, let's... Uh, Get in whatever last thoughts you want to get in, and we'll wrap it up then. Okay. Um, so if anybody is interested in uh, um, any of my presentations, um, feel free to contact me either on Facebook. Um, my name is Shatan Noir. Um, 
you can PM me and um, if you want me at your conference or um, paranormal or cryptozoology um, event, um, feel free to contact me. My books are found on Amazon.com. Um, you can either Google my name or uh, just you know look for the titles. Um, I'm also uh, writing for Squatch GQ magazine and Squatch Digest magazine. Um, you can find links to those on Facebook and also on my Facebook page. And I will spell out my name, um, S-H-E-T-A-N-N-O-I-R. Um, you can find me, um, you know, by my name. And I um, look forward to seeing people at events this year. And uh, if anybody has a Lake Monster report or any type of uh, report, um, feel free to find me on Facebook and send me a PM. Um, and uh, let me hear your story. One last question I just remembered I wanted to ask you. When we were talking, okay. the, when we were talking the other day, you seemed to imply that there was a difference between South Bay Bessie and Bessie proper. What, what is the story mm -hmm. on that? Okay, so South Bay Bessie is more, um, I want to say it's, it's a more contemporary, more modernized um, creature than, um, like, so... The original stories of Bessie was it was a plesiosaur type creature that people were seeing, you know, around the Sandusky area. Um, Include, you know, reports of it have been made by um, even a local pastor um, and to his and his wife and another um, lady who was with them. They spotted this creature, um, and those are more. I believe those are like. Um, pre-1980s. Now, 1980s and, and, you know, to present day, we're getting reports of um, a lake monster, and sometimes it changes descriptions from a plesiosaur to a sea serpent to, but everybody turns it, you know, South Bay Bessie. Um, and I even talked to, um, I was at the Cleveland Aquarium, last December and they jokingly had a sign up saying um, South Bay Bessie here. And I kind of laughed. I said, oh, you know, I do presentations on lake monsters. And the woman was like, on what? And I'm like, on lake monsters. And she just, she just had this look on her face like I, she didn't know what I was talking about. And I pointed at the sign. I said, South Bay Bessie? I said, that's supposedly a lake monster in Lake Erie. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's just kind of a joke that we put out because we're an aquarium and and people have asked us, you know, about sightings of her or him or it. And she said, but, you know, we we just kind of do it tongue-in-cheek. I said, oh, okay. So South Bay Bessie, even though there are reported sightings, um, I don't think it's, it's any different than, you know, Bessie, but because it's on the southern – um, side of Lake Erie, um, and it's just kind of, you know, gotten that um, nickname to it. So it's a localized variation. Yes, yes. And, and it could, you know, in South Bay Bessie, from what the mentality that I was getting from um, people was, 
it could be anything from a floating log to a, a overturned canoe. Um, it's basically their, you know, their, their term for an, you know, unidentified creature or object in the water. Yeah. If, it, if it looks like it could be a lake monster, let's call it South Bay Bessie and add to the reports. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, when you when you get shaky reports like that, it it clutters up the database. Yeah. Which is unfortunate, but that's just goes with the territory. I've seen. I mean, I've been doing lake monster research, field research on Lake Champlain for 27 years, and I've seen plenty of pieces of wood debris that were shaped like plesiosaurs. But I recognized them for what they were, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed it, and I, I certainly did. And uh, thank you for having me. It yeah, was wonderful. You're absolutely welcome to come back at any point in the future. So, uh, oh, thank you. Well, thank you again, and you're welcome. And um, I guess we'll wrap it up then. Well, thank you for having me on, and um, I hope you have a great night. Yeah, you too. Good night, everyone. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis.